Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. She was basely left alone in a retreat, though facing about and fighting to the last, and an archer pulled her off her horse. Oh, the uproar that was made, and the thanksgivings that were sung about the capture of this one poor country girl! Oh, the way in which she was demanded to be tried for sorcery and heresy and anything else you like by the Inquisitor-General of France, and by this great man and by that great man, until it is wearisome to think of. She was bought at last by the Bishop of Bouvet for ten thousand francs, and was shut up in her narrow prison, plain Joan of Arc again, and made of Orléans no more." I should never have done if I were to tell you how they had Joan out to examine her, and cross-examine her, and re-examine her, and worry her into saying anything and everything, and how all sorts of scholars and doctors bestowed their utmost tediousness upon her. Sixteen times she was brought out and shut up again, and worried, and entrapped, and argued with, until she was heartsick of the dreary business. On the last occasion of this kind she was brought into a burial-place at Rouen, dismally decorated with a scaffold, and a stake, and faggots, and the executioner, and a pulpit with a friar therein, and an awful sermon ready. It is very affecting to know that even at that pass the poor girl honoured the mean vermin of a king, who had so used her for his purposes, and so abandoned her, and that while she had been regardless of reproaches heaped upon herself, she spoke out courageously for him. It was natural in one so young to hold to life. To save her life she signed a declaration prepared for her, signed it with a cross, for she couldn't write, that all her visions and voices had come from the devil. Upon her recanting the past, and protesting that she would never wear a man's dress in future, she was condemned to imprisonment for life, on the bread of sorrow and the water of affliction. But, on the bread of sorrow and the water of affliction, the visions and the voices soon returned. It was quite natural that they should do so, for that kind of disease is much aggravated by fasting, loneliness, and anxiety of mind. It was not only got out of Joan that she considered herself inspired again, but she was taken in a man's dress, which had been left, to entrap her, in her prison, and which she put on, in her solitude perhaps in remembrance of her past glories, perhaps because the imaginary voices told her. For this relapse into the sorcery and heresy and anything else you like, she was sentenced to be burnt to death. And, in the market-place of Rouen, in the hideous dress which the monks had invented for such spectacles, with priests and bishops sitting in a gallery looking on, though some had the Christian grace to go away, unable to endure the infamous scene, this shrieking girl, last seen amidst the smoke and fire, holding a crucifix between her hands, last heard, calling upon Christ, was burnt to ashes. They threw her ashes into the river Seine, but they will rise against her murderers on the last day. From the moment of her capture, neither the French king nor one single man in all his court raised a finger to save her. It is no defense of them that they may have never really believed in her, or that they may have won her victories by their skill and bravery. The more they pretended to believe in her, the more they had caused her to believe in herself, and she had ever been true to them, ever brave, ever nobly devoted. But it is no wonder that they, who were in all things false to themselves, false to one another, false to their country, false to heaven, false to earth, should be monsters of ingratitude and treachery to a helpless peasant girl. In the picturesque old town of Rouen, where weeds and grass grow high on the cathedral towers, 
and the venerable Norman streets are still warm in the blessed sunlight, though the monkish fires that once gleamed horribly upon them have long grown cold. There is a statue of Joan of Arc, in the scene of her last agony, the square to which she has given its present name. I know some statues of modern times, even in the world's metropolis, I think, which commemorate less constancy, less earnestness, smaller claims upon the world's attention, and much greater impostors. Part the Third Bad deeds seldom prosper, happily for mankind, and the English cause gained no advantage from the cruel death of Joan of Arc. For a long time the war went heavily on. The Duke of Bedford died, the alliance with the Duke of Burgundy was broken, the Lord Talbot became a great general on the English side in France. But two of the consequences of war are famine, because the people cannot peacefully cultivate the ground, and pestilence, which comes of want, misery, and suffering. Both these horrors broke out in both countries, and lasted for two wretched years. Then the war went on again, and came by slow degrees to be so badly conducted by the English government that, within twenty years from the execution of the Maid of Orléans, of all the great French conquests, the town of Calais alone remained in English hands. While these victories and defeats were taking place in the course of time, many strange things happened at home. The young king, as he grew up, proved to be very unlike his great father, and showed himself a miserable, puny creature. There was no harm in him. He had a great aversion to shedding blood, which was something, but he was a weak, silly, helpless young man, and a mere shuttlecock to the great lordly battledores about the court. Of these battledores, Cardinal Beaufort, a relation of the king, and the Duke of Gloucester were at first the most powerful. The Duke of Gloucester had a wife, who was nonsensically accused of practicing witchcraft to cause the king's death and lead to her husband's coming to the throne, he being the next heir. She was charged with having, by the help of a ridiculous old woman named Marjorie, who was called a witch, made a little waxen doll in the king's likeness, and put it before a slow fire that it might gradually melt away. It was supposed, in such cases, that the death of the person whom the doll was made to represent was sure to happen. Whether the Duchess was as ignorant as the rest of them, and really did make such a doll with such an intention, I don't know. But you and I know very well that she might have made a thousand dolls, if she had been stupid enough, and might have melted them all, without hurting the King or anybody else. However, she was tried for it, and so was old Marjorie, and so was one of the Duke's chaplains who was charged with having assisted them. Both he and Marjorie were put to death, and the Duchess, after being taken on foot and bearing a lighted candle three times around the city as a penance, was imprisoned for life. The Duke himself took all this pretty quietly, and made as little stir about the matter as if he were rather glad to be rid of the Duchess. But he was not destined to keep himself out of trouble long. The royal shuttlecock being three-and-twenty, the battledores were very anxious to get him married. The Duke of Gloucester wanted him to marry a daughter of the Count of Armagnac, but the Cardinal and the Earl of Suffolk were all for Margaret, the daughter of the King of Sicily, who they knew was a resolute, ambitious woman, and would govern the King as she chose. To make friends with this lady, the Earl of Suffolk, who went over to arrange the match, consented to accept her for the king's wife without any fortune, and even to give up the two most valuable possessions England then had in France. So the marriage was arranged on terms very advantageous to the lady, and Lord Suffolk brought her to England, and she was married at Westminster. On what pretense this queen and her party charged the Duke of Gloucester with high treason within a couple years, it is impossible to make out, the matter is so confused, but they pretended that the king's life was in danger, and they took the duke prisoner. A fortnight afterwards he was found dead in bed, they said, and his body was shown to the people, and Lord Suffolk came in for the best part of his estates. You know by this time how strangely liable state prisoners were to sudden death. If Cardinal Beaufort had any hand in this matter it did him no good, 
for he died within six weeks, thinking it very hard and curious, at eighty years old, that he could not live to be Pope. This was the time when England had completed her loss of all her great French conquests. The people charged the loss principally upon the Earl of Suffolk, now a duke, who had made those easy terms about the royal marriage, and who, they believed, had even been bought by France. So he was impeached as a traitor, on a great number of charges, but chiefly on accusations of having aided the French king, and of designing to make his own son king of England. The commons, and the people being violent against him, the king was made, by his friends, to interpose to save him, by banishing him for five years, and proroguing the Parliament. The Duke had much ado to escape from a London mob, two thousand strong, who lay in wait for him in St. Giles' fields, but he got down to his own estates in Suffolk, and sailed away from Ipswich. Sailing across the Channel, he sent into Calais to know if he might land there, but they kept his boat and men in the harbour, until an English ship, carrying a hundred and fifty men, and called the Nicholas of the Tower, came alongside his little vessel, and ordered him on board. "'Welcome, traitor, as men say,' was the captain's grim and not very respectful salutation. He was kept on board a prisoner for eight-and-forty hours, and then a small boat appeared rowing toward the ship. As this boat came nearer, it was seen to have in it a block, a rusty sword, and an executioner in a black mask. The duke was handed down into it, and there his head was cut off with six strokes of the rusty sword. Then the little boat rowed away to Dover Beach, where the body was cast out, and left until the Duchess claimed it. By whom, high in authority, this murder was committed, has never appeared. No one was ever punished for it. There now arose in Kent an Irishman, who gave himself the name of Mortimer, but whose real name was Jack Cade. Jack in imitation of Wat Tyler, though he was a very different and inferior sort of man, addressed the Kentish men upon their wrongs, occasioned by the bad government of England, among so many battledores and such a poor shuttlecock, and the Kentish men rose up to the number of twenty thousand. Their place of assembly was Blackheath, where, headed by Jack, they put forth two papers, which they called The Complaint of the Commons of Kent, and the requests of the captain of the great assembly in Kent. They then retired to Sevenoaks. The royal army, coming up with them here, they beat it and killed their general. Then Jack dressed himself in the dead general's armour, and led his men to London. Jack passed into the city from Southwark, over the bridge, and entered it in triumph, giving the strictest order to his men not to plunder. Having made a show of his forces there, while the citizens looked on quietly, he went back into Southwark in good order, and passed the night. Next day he came back again, having got hold in the meantime of Lord Say, an unpopular nobleman. Says Jack to the Lord Mayor and judges, "'Will you be so good as to make a tribunal in Guildhall, and try me this nobleman?' The court being hastily made, he was found guilty, and Jack and his men cut his head off on Cornhill." They also cut off the head of his son-in-law, and then went back in good order to Southwark again. But, although the citizens could bear the beheading of an unpopular lord, they could not bear to have their houses pillaged, and it did so happen that Jack, after dinner, perhaps he had drunk a little too much, began to plunder the house where he lodged, upon which, of course, his men began to imitate him. Wherefore, the Londoners took counsel with Lord Scales, who had a thousand soldiers in the tower, and defended London Bridge, and kept Jack and his people out. This advantage gained, it was resolved by divers great men to divide Jack's army in the old way, by making a great many promises on behalf of the state that were never intended to be performed. This did divide them some of Jack's men saying that they ought to take the conditions which were offered, and others saying that they ought not, for they were only a snare, some going home at once, 
others staying where they were, and all doubting and quarrelling among themselves. Jack, who was in two minds about fighting or accepting a pardon, and who indeed did both, saw at last that there was nothing to expect from his men, and that it was very likely some of them would deliver him up and get a reward for a thousand marks, which was offered for his apprehension. And so, after they had travelled and quarrelled all the way from Southwark to Blackheath, and from Blackheath to Rochester, he mounted a good horse and galloped away into Sussex. But there galloped after him, on a better horse, one Alexander Iden, who came up with him, had a hard fight with him, and killed him. Jack's head was set aloft on London Bridge, with a face looking toward Blackheath where he had raised his flag, and Alexander Iden got the thousand marks. It is supposed by some that the Duke of York, who had been removed from a high post abroad through the Queen's influence, and sent out of the way to govern Ireland, was at the bottom of this rising of Jack and his men, because he wanted to trouble the government. He claimed, though not yet publicly, to have a better right to the throne than Henry of Lancaster, as one of the family of the Earl of March, whom Henry the Fourth had set aside. Touching this claim, which, being through female relationship, was not according to the usual descent, it is enough to say that Henry the Fourth was the free choice of the people and the Parliament, and that his family had now reigned undisputed for sixty years. The memory of Henry V was so famous, and the English people loved it so much, that the Duke of York's claim would, perhaps, never have been thought of, it would have been so hopeless, but for the unfortunate circumstance of the present king's being by this time quite an idiot, and the country very ill-governed. These two circumstances gave the Duke of York a power he could not otherwise have had. Whether the Duke knew anything of Jack Cade or not, he came over from Ireland while Jack's head was on London Bridge, being secretly advised that the Queen was setting up his enemy, the Duke of Somerset, against him. He went to Westminster at the head of four thousand men, and on his knees before the King represented to him the bad state of the country, and petitioned him to summon a Parliament to consider it. This the King promised. When the Parliament was summoned, the Duke of York accused the Duke of Somerset, and the Duke of Somerset accused the Duke of York, and, both in and out of the Parliament, the followers of each party were full of violence and hatreds toward the other. At length the Duke of York put himself at the head of a large force of his tenants, and, in arms, demanded the reformation of the government. Being shut out of London, he encamped at Dartford, and the royal army encamped at Blackheath. According as either side triumphed, the Duke of York was arrested, or the Duke of Somerset was arrested. The trouble ended, for the moment, in the Duke of York renewing his oath of allegiance, and going in peace to one of his own castles. Half a year afterwards the Queen gave birth to a son, who was very ill-received by the people, and not believed to be the son of the King. It shows the Duke of York to have been a moderate man, unwilling to involve England in new troubles, that he did not take advantage of the general discontent at this time, but really acted for the public good. He was made a member of the cabinet, and the king being now so much worse that he could not be carried about and shown to the people with any decency, the duke was made Lord Protector of the Kingdom, until the king should recover, or the prince should come of age. At the same time the Duke of Somerset was committed to the tower. So now the Duke of Somerset was down, and the Duke of York was up. By the end of the year, however, the King recovered his memory and some spark of sense, upon which the Queen used her power, which recovered with him, to get the Protector disgraced and her favourite released. So now the Duke of York was down, and the Duke of Somerset was up. These ducal ups and downs gradually separated the whole nation into the two parties of York and Lancaster, and led to those terrible civil wars long known as the Wars of the Red and White Roses, because the Red Rose was the badge of the House of Lancaster, and the White Rose was the badge of the House of York. The Duke of York, joined by some other powerful noblemen of the White Rose Party, and leading a small army, met the King with another small army at St. Albans, and demanded that the Duke of Somerset should be given up. 
The poor King, being made to say in answer that he would sooner die, was instantly attacked. The Duke of Somerset was killed, and the King himself was wounded in the neck, and took refuge in the house of a poor tanner. Whereupon the Duke of York went to him, led him with great submission to the Abbey, and said he was very sorry for what had happened. Having now the King in his possession, he got a Parliament summoned, and himself once more made protector, but only for a few months, for, on the King getting a little better again, the Queen and her party got him into their possession, and disgraced the Duke once more. So now the Duke of York was down again. Some of the best men in power, seeing the danger of these constant changes, tried even then to prevent the Red and the White Rose Wars. They brought about a great council in London between the two parties. The White Roses assembled in Blackfriars, the Red Roses in Whitefriars, and some good priests communicated between them, and made the proceedings known at evening to the King and the judges. They ended in a peaceful agreement that there should be no more quarrelling, and there was a great royal procession to St. Paul's, in which the Queen walked arm in arm with her old enemy, the Duke of York, to show the people how comfortable they all were. This state of peace lasted half a year, when a dispute between the Earl of Warwick, one of the Duke's powerful friends, and some of the King's servants at court, led to an attack upon that Earl, who was a white rose, and to a sudden breaking out of all old animosities. So here were greater ups and downs than ever. There were even greater ups and downs than these soon after. After various battles, the Duke of York fled to Ireland, and his son, the Earl of March, to Calais, with their friends, the Earl of Salisbury and Warwick, and a Parliament was held declaring them all traitors. Little the worse for this, the Earl of Warwick presently came back, landed in Kent, and was joined by the Archbishop of Canterbury and other powerful noblemen and gentlemen, engaged the King's forces at Northampton, signally defeated them, and took the King himself prisoner, who was found in his tent. Warwick would have been glad, I dare say, to have taken the Queen and Prince too, but they escaped into Wales and thence into Scotland. The King was carried by the victorious force straight to London, and made to call a new Parliament, which immediately declared that the Duke of York and those other noblemen were not traitors, but excellent subjects. Then, back comes the Duke from Ireland, at the head of five hundred horsemen, rides from London to Westminster, and enters the House of Lords. There he laid his hand upon the cloth of gold which covered the empty throne, as if he had half a mind to sit down in it, but he did not. On the Archbishop of Canterbury, asking him if he would visit the King, who was in his palace close by, he replied, I know no one in this country, my lord, who ought not to visit me. None of the lords present spoke a single word, so the duke went out as he had come in, established himself royally in the king's palace, and six days afterwards sent in to the lords a formal statement of his claim to the throne. The lords went to the king on this momentous subject, and after a great deal of discussion, in which the judges and the other law officers were afraid to give an opinion on either side, the question was compromised. It was agreed that the present king should retain the crown for his life, and that it should then pass to the Duke of York and his heirs. But the resolute queen, determined on asserting her son's right, would hear of no such thing. She came from Scotland to the north of England, where several powerful lords armed in her cause. The Duke of York, for his part, set off with some five thousand men, a little time before Christmas Day, one thousand four hundred and sixty, to give her battle. He lodged at Sandal Castle near Wakefield, and the Red Roses defied him to come out on Wakefield Green and fight them then and there. His generals said he had best wait until his gallant son, the Earl of March, came up with his power, but he was determined to accept the challenge. He did so in an evil hour. He was hotly pressed on all sides, two thousand of his men lay dead on Wakefield Green, and he himself was taken prisoner. They set him down in mock state on an ant-hill, and twisted grass about his head, and pretended to pay court to him on their knees, saying, O king without a kingdom, and prince without a people, we hope your gracious majesty is very well and happy. 
they did worse than this. They cut his head off, and handed it on a pole to the queen, who laughed with delight when she saw it. You recollect their walking so religiously and comfortably to St. Paul's? And had it fixed, with a paper crown upon its head, on the walls of York. The Earl of Salisbury lost his head too, and the Duke of York's second son, a handsome boy who was flying with his tutor over Wakefield Bridge, was stabbed in the heart by a murderous lord, Lord Clifford by name, whose father had been killed by the White Roses in the fight at St. Albans. There was awful sacrifice of life in this battle, for no quarter was given, and the Queen was wild for revenge. When men unnaturally fight against their own countrymen, they are always observed to be more unnaturally cruel and filled with rage than they are against any other enemy. But Lord Clifford had stabbed the second son of the Duke of York, not the first. The eldest son, Edward, Earl of March, was at Gloucester, and, vowing vengeance for the death of his father, his brother, and their faithful friends, he began to march against the Queen. He had to turn and fight a great body of Welsh and Irish first, who worried his advance. These he defeated in a great fight at Mortimer's Cross near Hereford, where he beheaded a number of the White Roses taken in battle, in retaliation for the beheading of the White Roses at Wakefield. The Queen had the next turn of beheading. Having moved toward London, and falling in, between St. Albans and Barnet, with the Earl of Warwick and the Duke of Norfolk, White Roses both, who were there with an army to oppose her, and had got the king with them, she defeated them with great loss, and struck off the heads of two prisoners of note, who were in the king's tent with him, and to whom the king had promised his protection. Her triumph, however, was very short. She had no treasure, and her army persisted by plunder. This caused them to be hated and dreaded by the people, and particularly by the London people who were wealthy. As soon as the Londoners heard that Edward, Earl of March, united with the Earl of Warwick, was advancing toward the city, they refused to send the Queen supplies, and made a great rejoicing. The Queen and her men retreated with all speed, and Edward and Warwick came on, greeted with loud acclamations on every side. The courage, beauty, and virtues of young Edward could not be sufficiently praised by the whole people. He rode into London like a conqueror, and met with an enthusiastic welcome. A few days afterwards, Lord Falconbridge and the Bishop of Exeter assembled the citizens in St. John's Field, Clerkenwell, and asked them if they would have Henry of Lancaster for their king. To this they all roared, No, 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 and King Edward, King Edward. Then said those noblemen, Would they love and serve young Edward? To this they all cried, Yes, yes and threw up their caps, and clapped their hands, and cheered tremendously. Therefore it was declared that, by joining the Queen and not protecting those two prisoners of note, Henry of Lancaster had forfeited the crown, and Edward of York was proclaimed king. He made a great speech to the applauding people at Westminster, and sat down as sovereign of England on that throne, on the golden covering of which his father, worthy of a better fate than the bloody axe which cut the thread of so many lives in England through so many years, had laid his hand. End of chapter 22 Recording by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois Chapter 23 of A Child's History of England this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Leader. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter 23 England under Edward IV. King Edward IV was not quite twenty-one years of age when he took that unquiet seat upon the throne of England. The Lancaster party, the Red Roses, were then assembling in great numbers near York, and it was necessary to give them battle instantly. But the stout Earl of Warwick, leading for the young king, and the young king himself closely following him, and the English people crowding round the royal standard, the White and the Red Roses met on a wild March day when the snow was falling heavily at Towton. 
and there such a furious battle raged between them that the total loss amounted to forty thousand men, all Englishmen, fighting upon English ground against one another. The young king gained the day, took down the heads of his father and brother from the walls of York, and put up the heads of some of the most famous noblemen engaged in the battle on the other side. Then he went to London, and was crowned with great splendor. A new parliament met. No fewer than one hundred and fifty of the principal noblemen and gentlemen on the Lancaster side were declared traitors, and the king, who had very little humanity, though he was handsome in person and agreeable in manners, resolved to do all he could to pluck up the red rose, root and branch. Queen Margaret, however, was still active for her young son. She obtained help from Scotland and from Normandy, and took several important English castles. But Warwick soon retook them. The Queen lost all her treasure on board ship in a great storm, and both she and her son suffered great misfortunes. Once, in the winter weather, as they were riding through a forest, they were attacked and plundered by a party of robbers, and when they had escaped from these men, and were passing alone and on foot through a thick dark part of the wood, they came, all at once, upon another robber. So the Queen, with a stout heart, took the little prince by the hand, and, going straight up to that robber, said to him, "'My friend, this is the young son of your lawful king. I confide him to your care.' The robber was surprised, but took the boy in his arms, and faithfully restored him and his mother to their friends. In the end, the queen's soldiers, being beaten and dispersed, she went abroad again, and kept quiet for the present. Now, all this time the deposed King Henry was concealed by a Welsh knight who kept him close in his castle. But next year the Lancaster party, recovering their spirits, raised a large body of men and called him out of his retirement to put him at their head. They were joined by some powerful noblemen who had sworn fidelity to the new king, but who were ready, as usual, to break their oaths whenever they thought there was anything to be got by it. One of the worst things in the history of the War of the Red and White Roses is the ease with which these noblemen, who should have set an example of honor to the people, left either side as they took slight offense or were disappointed in their greedy expectations and joined the other. Well, Warwick's brother soon beat the Lancastrians, and the false noblemen, being taken, were beheaded without a moment's loss of time. The deposed king had a narrow escape. Three of his servants were taken, and one of them bore his cap of estate, which was set with pearls and embroidered with two golden crowns. However, the head to which the cap belonged got safely into Lancashire, and lay pretty quietly there, the people in the secret being very true, for more than a year. At length, an old monk gave such intelligence as led to Henry's being taken while he was sitting at dinner in a place called Waddington Hall. He was immediately sent to London, and met at Islington by the Earl of Warwick, by whose directions he was put upon a horse, with his legs tied under it, and paraded three times round the pillory. Then he was carried off to the tower, where they treated him well enough. The white rose being so triumphant, the young king abandoned himself entirely to pleasure and led a jovial life. But thorns were springing up under his bed of roses, as he soon found out. For, having been privately married to Elizabeth Woodville, a young widow lady, very beautiful and very captivating, and at last resolving to make his secret known, and to declare her his queen, he gave some offence to the Earl of Warwick, who was usually called the King-Maker, because of his power and influence, and because of his having lent such great help to placing Edward on the throne. This offence was not lessened by the jealousy with which the Neville family, the Earl of Warwick's, regarded the promotion of the Woodville family, for the young queen was so bent on providing for her relations that she made her father an earl and a great officer of state married her five sisters to young noblemen of the highest rank, and provided for her younger brother, a young man of twenty, by marrying him to an immensely rich old duchess of eighty. 
the earl of warwick took all this pretty graciously for a man of his proud temper until the question arose to whom the king's sister margaret should be married the earl of warwick said to one of the french king's sons and was allowed to go over to the french king to make friendly proposals for that purpose and to hold all manner of friendly interviews with him but while he was so engaged the Woodville party married the young lady to the Duke of Burgundy. Upon this he came back in great rage and scorn, and shut himself up discontented in his castle of Middleham. A reconciliation, though not a very sincere one, was patched up between the Earl of Warwick and the King, and lasted until the Earl married his daughter, against the King's wishes, to the Duke of Clarence. While the marriage was being celebrated at Calais, the people in the north of England, where the influence of the Neville family was strongest, broke out into rebellion. Their complaint was that England was oppressed and plundered by the Woodville family, whom they demanded to have removed from power. As they were joined by great numbers of people, and as they openly declared that they were supported by the Earl of Warwick, the King did not know what to do. At last, as he wrote to the Earl beseeching his aid, he and his new son-in-law came over to England, and began to arrange the business by shutting the King up in Middleham Castle in the safe-keeping of the Archbishop of York. So England was not only in the strange position of having two kings at once, but they were both prisoners at the same time. Even as yet, however, the King-maker was so far true to the King that he dispersed a new rising of the Lancastrians, took their leader prisoner, and brought him to the king, who ordered him to be immediately executed. He presently allowed the king to return to London, and there innumerable pledges of forgiveness and friendship were exchanged between them and between the Nevilles and the Woodvilles, the king's eldest daughter was promised in marriage to the heir of the Neville family, and more friendly oaths were sworn, and more friendly promises made, than this book would hold. They lasted about three months. At the end of that time the Archbishop of York made a feast for the King, the Earl of Warwick, and the Duke of Clarence at his house, the Moor in Hertfordshire. The King was washing his hands before supper, when someone whispered him that a body of a hundred men were lying in ambush outside the house. Whether this were true or untrue, the King took fright, mounted his horse, and rode through the dark night to Windsor Castle. Another reconciliation was patched up between him and the kingmaker, but it was a short one, and it was the last. A new rising took place in Lincolnshire, and the king marched to repress it. Having done so, he proclaimed that both the Earl of Warwick and the Duke of Clarence were traitors, who had secretly assisted it, and who had been prepared publicly to join it on the following day. In these dangerous circumstances they both took ship and sailed away to the French court. And here a meeting took place between the Earl of Warwick and his old enemy, the Dowager Queen Margaret, through whom his father had had his head struck off, and to whom he had been a bitter foe. But now, when he said that he had done with the ungrateful and perfidious Edward of York, and that henceforth he devoted himself to the restoration of the house of Lancaster, either in the person of her husband or of her little son, she embraced him as if he had ever been her dearest friend. She did more than that. She married her son to his second daughter, the Lady Anne. However agreeable this marriage was to the new friends, it was very disagreeable to the Duke of Clarence, who perceived that his father-in-law, the kingmaker, would never make him king now. So, being but a weak-minded young traitor, possessed of very little worth or sense, he readily listened to an artful court lady sent over for the purpose, and promised to turn traitor once more, and go over to his brother, King Edward, when a fitting opportunity should come. The Earl of Warwick, knowing nothing of this, soon redeemed his promise to the Dowager Queen Margaret by invading England and landing at Plymouth where he instantly proclaimed King Henry, and summoned all Englishmen between the ages of sixteen and sixty to join his banner. Then, with his army increasing as he marched along, he went northward, and came so near King Edward, who was in that part of the country, that Edward had to ride hard for it to the coast of Norfolk, 
and thence to get away in such ships as he could find to Holland. Thereupon the triumphant kingmaker and his false son-in-law, the Duke of Clarence, went to London, took the old king out of the tower, and walked him in a great procession to St. Paul's Cathedral with the crown upon his head. This did not improve the temper of the Duke of Clarence, who saw himself farther off from being king than ever, but he kept his secret and said nothing. The Neville family were restored to all their honors and glories, and the Woodvilles and the rest were disgraced. The kingmaker, less sanguinary than the king, shed no blood except that of the Earl of Worcester, who had been so cruel to the people as to have gained the title of the Butcher. Him they caught hidden in a tree, and him they tried and executed. No other death stained the kingmaker's triumph. To dispute this triumph, back came King Edward again next year, landing at Ravenspur, coming on to York, causing all his men to cry, Long live King Henry! and swearing on the altar, without a blush, that he came to lay no claim to the crown. Now was the time for the Duke of Clarence, who ordered his men to assume the white rose and declare for his brother. The Marquis of Montague, though the Earl of Warwick's brother, also declining to fight against King Edward, he went on successfully to London, where the Archbishop of York let him into the city, and where the people made great demonstrations in his favor. For this they had four reasons. Firstly, there were great numbers of the King's adherents hiding in the city and ready to break out. Secondly, the King owed them a great deal of money, which they could never hope to get if he were unsuccessful. Thirdly, there was a young prince to inherit the crown, and, fourthly, the king was gay and handsome, and more popular than a better man might have been with the city ladies. After a stay of only two days with these worthy supporters, the king marched out to Barnet Common to give the Earl of Warwick battle. And now it was to be seen, for the last time, whether the king or the king-maker was to carry the day. While the battle was yet pending, the faint-hearted Duke of Clarence began to repent, and sent over secret messages to his father-in-law, offering his services in mediation with the King. But the Earl of Warwick disdainfully rejected them, and replied that Clarence was false and perjured, and that he would settle the quarrel by sword. The battle began at four o'clock in the morning, and lasted until ten, and during the greater part of the time it was fought in a thick mist absurdly supposed to be raised by a magician. The loss of life was very great, for the hatred was strong on both sides. The king-maker was defeated, and the king triumphed. Both the Earl of Warwick and his brother were slain, and their bodies lay in St. Paul's for some days as a spectacle to the people. Margaret's spirit was not broken even by this great blow. Within five days she was in arms again, and raised her standard in Bath, whence she set off with her army to try and join Lord Pembroke, who had a force in Wales. But the king, coming up with her outside the town of Tewkesbury, and ordering his brother, the Duke of Gloucester, who was a brave soldier, to attack her men, she sustained an entire defeat, and was taken prisoner, together with her son, now only eighteen years of age. The conduct of the king to this poor youth was worthy of his cruel character." he ordered him to be led into his tent. "'And what,' said he, "'brought you to England?' "'I came to England,' replied the prisoner, with the spirit which a man of spirit might have admired in a captive, "'to recover my father's kingdom, which descended to him as his right, and from him descends to me as mine.' The king, drawing off his iron gauntlet, struck him with it in the face, and the Duke of Clarence and some other lords who were there, drew their noble swords, and killed him. His mother survived him a prisoner for five years. After her ransom by the King of France, she survived for six years more. Within three weeks of this murder, Henry died one of those convenient sudden deaths which were so common in the tower. In plainer words, he was murdered by the King's order. Having no particular excitement on his hands after this great defeat of the Lancaster party, and being perhaps desirous to get rid of some of his fat, for he was now getting too corpulent to be handsome, the king thought of making war on France. 
as he wanted more money for this than the parliament could give him though they were usually ready enough for war he invented a new way of raising it by sending for the principal citizens of london and telling them with a grave face that he was very much in want of cash and would take it very kind in them if they would lend him some it being impossible for them safely to refuse they complied and the monies thus forced from them were called no doubt to the great amusement of the king and the court as if they were free gifts benevolences what with grants from parliament and what with benevolences the king raised an army and passed over to calais as nobody wanted war however the french king made proposals of peace which were accepted and a truce was concluded for seven long years the proceedings between the kings of france and england on this occasion were very friendly very splendid and very distrustful they finished with a meeting between the two kings on a temporary bridge over the river somme where they embraced through two holes in a strong wooden grating like a lion's cage and made several bows and fine speeches to one another it was time now that the duke of clarence should be punished for his treacheries and fate had his punishment in store he was probably not trusted by the king for who could trust him who knew him and he had certainly a powerful opponent in his brother richard duke of gloucester who being avaricious and ambitious wanted to marry that widowed daughter of the earl of warwick's who had been espoused to the deceased young prince at calais clarence who wanted all the family wealth for himself secreted this lady whom richard found disguised as a servant in the city of london and whom he married arbitrators appointed by the king then divided the property between the brothers this led to ill-will and mistrust between them clarence's wife dying and he wishing to make another marriage which was obnoxious to the king his ruin was hurried by that means too at first the court struck at his retainers and dependents and accused some of them of magic and witchcraft and similar nonsense successful against this small game it then mounted to the duke himself who was impeached by his brother the king in person on a variety of such charges he was found guilty and is sentenced to be publicly executed he never was publicly executed but he met his death somehow in the tower and no doubt through some agency of the king or his brother gloucester or both it was supposed at the time that he was told to choose the manner of his death and that he chose to be drowned in a butt of malmsey wine i hope the story may be true for it would have been a becoming death for such a miserable creature the king survived him some five years he died in the forty-second year of his life and the twenty-third of his reign he had a very good capacity and some good points, but he was selfish, careless, sensual, and cruel. He was a favorite with the people for his showy manners, and the people were a good example to him in the constancy of their attachment. He was penitent on his deathbed for his benevolences and other extortions, and ordered restitution to be made to the people who had suffered from them. He also called about his bed the enriched members of the Woodville family, and the proud lords whose honours were of older date, and endeavoured to reconcile them for the sake of the peaceful succession of his son and the tranquillity of England. End of chapter 23. Recording by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois. Chapter 24 of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, October 2007. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty Four England under Edward V. The late king's eldest son, the Prince of Wales, called Edward after him, was only thirteen years of age at his father's death. He was at Ludlow Castle with his uncle, the Earl of Rivers. The prince's brother, the Duke of York, only eleven years of age, was in London with his mother. 
the boldest, most crafty, and most dreaded nobleman in England at that time was their uncle Richard, Duke of Gloucester, and everybody wondered how the two poor boys would fare with such an uncle for a friend or a foe. The Queen, their mother, being exceedingly uneasy about this, was anxious that instructions should be sent to Lord Rivers to raise an army to escort the young king safely to London. But Lord Hastings, who was of the court party opposed to the Woodvilles, and who disliked the thought of giving them that power, argued against the proposal, and obliged the Queen to be satisfied with an escort of two thousand horse. The Duke of Gloucester did nothing, at first, to justify suspicion. He came from Scotland, where he was commanding an army, to York, and was there the first to swear allegiance to his nephew. He then wrote a condoling letter to the Queen Mother, and set off to be present at the coronation in London. Now the young king, journeying towards London too, with Lord Rivers and Lord Grey, came to Stony Stratford, as his uncle came to Northampton, about ten miles distant, and when those two lords heard that the Duke of Gloucester was so near, they proposed to the young king that they should go back and greet him in his name. The boy being very willing that they should do so, they rode off and were received with great friendliness, and asked by the Duke of Gloucester to stay and dine with him. In the evening, while they were married together, up came the Duke of Buckingham, with three hundred horsemen, and next morning the two lords and the two dukes, and the three hundred horsemen, rode away together to rejoin the king. Just as they were entering Stony Stratford, the Duke of Gloucester, checking his horse, suddenly turned on the two lords, charged them with alienating from him the affections of his sweet nephew, and caused them to be arrested by the three hundred horsemen, and taken back. Then he and the Duke of Buckingham went straight to the king, whom they had now in their power, to whom they made a show of kneeling down, and offering great love and submission. And then they ordered his attendants to disperse, and took him alone with them to Northampton. A few days afterwards they conducted him to London, and lodged him in the bishop's palace. But he did not remain there long, for the Duke of Buckingham, with a tender face, made a speech expressing how anxious he was for the royal boy's safety and how much safer he would be in the tower until his coronation than he could be anywhere else so to the tower he was taken very carefully and the duke of gloucester was named protector of the state although gloucester had proceeded thus far with a very smooth countenance and although he was a clever man fair of speech and not ill-looking in spite of one of his shoulders being something higher than the other and although he had come into the city riding bareheaded at the king's side, and looking very fond of him, he had made the king's mother more uneasy yet, and when the royal boy was taken to the tower, she became so alarmed that she took sanctuary in Westminster with her five daughters. Nor did she do this without reason, for the Duke of Gloucester, finding that the lords who were opposed to the Woodville family were faithful to the young king nevertheless, quickly resolved to strike a blow for himself. Accordingly, while those lords met in council at the tower, he and those who were in his interest met in separate council at his own residence, Crosby Palace, in Bishopgate Street. Being at last quite prepared, he one day appeared unexpectedly at the council in the tower, and appeared to be very jocular and merry. He was particularly gay with the Bishop of Eli, praising the strawberries that grew in his garden on Holborn Hill, and asking him to have some gathered, that he might eat them at dinner. The bishop, quite proud of the honour, sent one of his men to fetch some, and the duke, still very jocular and gay, went out, and the council all said what a very agreeable duke he was. In a little time, however, he came back quite altered, not at all jocular, frowning and fierce, and suddenly said, what do those persons deserve who have compassed my destruction, I being the king's lawful as well as natural protector? To this strange question Lord Hastings replied that they deserved death, whosoever they were. Then, said the duke, I tell you that they are that sorceress, my brother's wife, meaning the queen, and that other sorceress, Jane Shore, 
who by witchcraft have withered my body, and caused my arm to shrink, as I now show you. He then pulled up his sleeve, and showed them his arm, which was shrunken, it is true, but which had been so, as they all very well knew, from the hour of his birth. Jane Shore, being then the lover of Lord Hastings, as she had formerly been of the late king, that lord knew that he himself was attacked, so he said, in some confusion, Certainly, my lord, if they have done this, they be worthy of punishment. If, said the Duke of Gloucester, do you talk to me of ifs? I tell you that they have so done, and I will make it good upon thy body, thou traitor. With that he struck the table a great blow with his fist. This was a signal to some of his people outside to cry, Treason! They immediately did so, and there was a rush into the chamber of so many armed men that it was filled in a moment. First, said the Duke of Gloucester to Lord Hastings, I arrest thee, traitor, and let him, he added to the armed men who took him, have a priest at once, for by St. Paul I will not dine until I have seen his head off. Lord Hastings was hurried to the green by the tower chapel, and there beheaded, on a log of wood that happened to be lying on the ground. Then the duke dined with a good appetite, and after dinner summoning the principal citizens to attend him, told them that Lord Hastings and the rest had designed to murder both himself and the Duke of Buckingham, who stood by his side, if he had not providentially discovered their design. He requested them to be so obliging as to inform their fellow-citizens of the truth of what he said, and issued a proclamation, prepared and neatly copied out beforehand, to the same effect. On the same day that the Duke did these things in the tower, Sir Richard Ratcliffe, the boldest and most undaunted of his men, went down to Pontefract, arrested Lord Rivers, Lord Grey, and two other gentlemen, and publicly executed them on the scaffold, without any trial, for having intended the Duke's death. Three days afterwards the Duke, not to lose time, went down the river to Westminster in his barge, attended by divers, bishops, lords, and soldiers, and demanded that the Queen should deliver her second son, the Duke of York, into his safe-keeping. The Queen, being obliged to comply, resigned the child after she had wept over him, and Richard of Gloucester placed him with his brother in the tower. Then he seized Jane Shore, and because she had been the lover of the late King, confiscated her property, and got her sentenced to do public penance in the streets by walking in a scanty dress, with bare feet, and carrying a lighted candle to St. Paul's Cathedral through the most crowded part of the city. Having now all things ready for his own advancement, he caused a friar to preach a sermon at the cross which stood in front of St. Paul's Cathedral, in which he dwelt upon the profligate manners of the late king, and upon the late shame of Jane Shore, and hinted that the princes were not his children. "'Whereas, good people,' said the friar, whose name was Shaw, "'my lord the protector, the noble Duke of Gloucester, "'that sweet prince, the pattern of all the noblest virtues, "'is the perfect image and express likeness of his father.' "'There had been a little plot between the duke and the friar, "'that the duke should appear in the crowd at this moment, "'when it was expected that the people would cry, "'Long live King Richard!' But, either through the friar saying the words too soon, or through the duke's coming too late, the duke and the words did not come together, and the people only laughed, and the friar sneaked off, ashamed. The duke of Buckingham was a better hand at such business than the friar, so he went to the guildhall the next day, and addressed the citizens in the Lord Protector's behalf. A few dirty men who had been hired and stationed there for the purpose crying when he had done, God save King Richard, he made them a great bow, and thanked them with all his heart. Next day, to make an end of it, he went with the mayor and some lords, and citizens to Bayard Castle, by the river, where Richard then was, and read an address, humbly entreating him to accept the crown of England. Richard, who looked down upon them out of a window, and pretended to be in great uneasiness and alarm, assured them there was nothing he desired less, and that his deep affection for his nephews forbade him to think of it. 
To this the Duke of Buckingham replied, with pretended warmth, that the free people of England would never submit to his nephew's rule, and that if Richard, who was the lawful heir, refused the crown, why then they must find some one else to wear it. The Duke of Gloucester returned, that, since he used that strong language, it became his painful duty to think no more of himself, and to accept the crown. Upon that the people cheered and dispersed, and the Duke of Gloucester and the Duke of Buckingham passed a pleasant evening, talking over the play they had just acted with so much success, and every word of which they had prepared together. End of chapter 24「as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.